0: So today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 5, 15 through 33. In addition to your own Bible, you'll find it on the back side of your message notes. If you're able, please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, He who loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is the word of God.
1: I'm sure it comes as no surprise to you if I say to you that cultural attitudes towards marriage and the family have changed dramatically over the past 50 years. Dramatically. Whereas at one time it was assumed within 50 years or so ago that sex should be reserved for, reserved for marriage, now it is assumed that sex between adults is perfectly fine so long as it's consensual. Whereas once it was assumed that marriage was a prerequisite for intimate sexual relationship, now it is assumed that it's entirely optional. In fact, cohabitation is now the norm prior to marriage, not the exception. Whereas once it was assumed that marriage was a permanent union, which could not be dissolved except in cases of proven adultery or cruelty, now it is assumed that no one should have to stay in a marriage if they don't want to. Believe it or not, that law only became true in 1969. Before 1969, you had to prove cruelty or adultery in all the states of the United States, except for one. It's changed a lot in 50 years. Whereas once it was believed that... Marriage by definition involved a union between a man and a woman now it is widely assumed that two people of the same sex can be married to one another and whereas once it was believed that an unborn child's life should not be taken except to save the life of another of the mother for nearly 50 years now it's been legal for a woman to terminate her pregnancy and whereas once it was considered shameful for a man or a woman to expose themselves to anyone but their spouse in the intimacy of their bedrooms, now it is considered acceptable to do this for the sheer entertainment of other people. The world has changed a lot in 50 years. I'm old enough to have seen most of those changes happen in my lifetime. We live in a culture which has been, re, has been rewriting the manual for human relationships for more than 50 years. Yes, whereas once it was assumed that sex was deserved for marriage, that cohabitation was wrong, and that marriage was indissoluble, where marriage was only between a man and a woman. Now, we, where unborn children might have a right to life, now we live in a culture that assumes none of things are true. The world has changed a lot. What are we to make of this? Are these changes signs of progress for the human race? Or are they signs of its decay? And if we believe that perhaps those things are wrong that have been happening in our culture, does it put the church as a disadvantage in how it approaches its culture? Or is it true, as it actually is, that the world has been crazy a long time and it was very crazy in the first century, if anything, it was more... Uh, unlike Christian standards in the first century than it is even in the 21st century. And yet the church survived. What is the church's response to all of these changes? Should the church capitulate to the culture embracing its new views on marriage and sexuality? Should the church condemn those who violate biblical standards for relationships? We might even ask, what right does the church have to legislate these things anyway? After all, isn't the Bible outdated and who says that that's the truth? And how is the church to respond to the brokenness that many of us have experienced in our own intimate human relationships? Is there hope for a good future when our past is littered with bad decisions? These are critical questions, but they're also very, very personal to us. They cut to the heart of our shared humanity, and many of us have been deeply affected by the issues I've just described Some of us would say we're grateful for these changes, but many of us would agree that whenever we or others we love have followed the so-called new morality, a lot of brokenness has come into our lives and into the lives of those we love. This morning, I can't talk about all all those issues, but I did want to talk honestly about the fact that we live in confusing times. And there's no, uh, no use in putting our heads into the sand and pretending that's not the case. There's also no use in simply lashing out how bad everything is in here, out there. Because in truth, the church itself has been affected by all, all the things I've talked to you about. It's not a problem out there. It's a problem in here within us. I hope you, to help you help you see during the course of this week and the next couple as we take a look at this section of the book of Ephesians which we have been studying for several months now. Just I hope to help you to see that there are good reasons why we should affirm the consistent biblical message with respect to marriage and the family and our sexuality. I hope also to help you see that no matter what mistakes we've made in the past, one of the beautiful things about the Christian message is that no situation is ever hopeless, no failure is ever final, that no matter what has happened in our past, God has a good plan for us that starts right where we are today. God's grace always extends to us right here and right now. For the resurrection of Jesus and the subsequent pouring out of his spirit into our lives makes us new creation people. We are able to live the fully human lives that God first intended us to have. Yes, we have the old life still within us. And we tend to blame our sexuality and our passions. But these are not the problem. The problem is our fleshly selfishness would take those God-given gifts and use them to meet our own ends rather than to be a blessing to others. We use them to take and rather than to give. That's something about the human condition. But the Holy Spirit of God is within us. And he can bring forgiveness and peace. and grace so long as we are willing to open our arms and hands and our hearts to his truth and stop making excuses and stop blaming everybody else and start accepting responsibility for our decisions today, right here, right now, where I am. Yes, it's so important that we learn to live the fully human lives God intended us to have right here, right here, right now, within our own Family situation, whatever it is. Now, I've raised a whole host of issues, and you'd love for me to take time to talk about it until it got to be about 2 o'clock, and then you'd get tired of it. Yeah. So I won't be doing that today because what I'm actually doing is teaching through the book of Ephesians as we have been throughout the course of this 2019 season, taking breaks only for the special Christian holidays of, uh, you know, of Easter and uh, 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 Easter tide, and uh, Ascension, and the Re- uh, Ascension, and the Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was born. But now it's time for us to jump back into this study at the very place where we left off. We're beginning uh, there in the 15th chap, in the fifth, in the fifth chapter, the 15th verse, specifically with regard to the 22nd verse and following. So we're going to talk today about what it means to be a new creation family. What it means to live uh, to live uh, the way God intended for us to live. What we're beginning to understand is that the, the way, the, the admonitions in Scripture are not intended to make our lives worse or less human, but rather to make our lives better and more human. So this text of Scripture, which we'll just take a peek at this morning to get a feel for, because I, in, despite what I say, I am sensitive to the time. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, and, and the weather, I, I, I want us to take a look at this critical passage from a little bit different angle than maybe you've seen it in the past. And I, I can't address all of the issues, but some of the issues I've talked about already do fit into this text of Scripture. So let's take a look at it. And I want you to see three things about marriage in this text of Scripture. And I'd like to explore them with you a little bit. Later. First of all, marriage is a mirror of new creation. Secondly, marriage is a holy mystery. And thirdly, marriage is a sacred dance. Now, Lord willing, I will have the opportunity to talk about all three of those things in the moments we have together. First of all, marriage is a mirror of new creation. One of the mistakes we made when we, t- when we teach from Scripture is we sometimes pull out one Scripture and just start to talk about it. And it's true in all that it says, but we forget that Paul just wasn't just writing a verse of Scripture. He was writing a whole book, and what he wrote at that point fits into the whole story. And so let's take a look a little bit at marriage and see it in the, in the context of this whole book book that Paul is writing. In many ways, this is some of the climax of this book. Because if you were to follow, if you have been with us during the course of this six months that we've been more or less in this book, we would see that God has an ultimate plan for the universe that is described for us in the first chapter and the tenth verse. That in Christ, His plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. God is about, the purpose of Jesus' coming was to bring together what had broken, what had been broken. He wanted to unite all things together in him, things in heaven and on earth. And so from the biblical story, we see that whereas heaven and earth were meant to live in part, heaven speaking of the place where God rules, not a literal place way far away, but God's rule and God's reign. In the control room, the bridge, if you will, for the for the ship of this earth, right? Um, that the God was planning was intending to live in partnerships with the humanity that He created. He put humans on it to be a blessing to this world. That we live in a good creation where God has given us all things to enjoy and relation. And so we were born with harmony between us and God. Where harmony, man walked with God in the cool of the day. Harmony within ourselves. He was naked and unashamed, just totally at peace. Just like a two-year-old that runs around naked, doesn't think they're unashamed. That's the all humanity was in the first. Uh, totally at peace within themselves. And harmony with the, with, the well, in that point, the other people, which at that point was just one, this girl named Eve. She is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman. He says, At last, behold beauty. And the man and woman were joined together, and they became one flesh. And they were naked and unashamed, right? Intimacy, peace with humanity, and then also peace with creation. Humanity was called to bring flourishing to this the, with the raw materials that God had made of this world, to take the grain and to cultivate it, to f- to, 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 to build culture and life under God's leadership as a way of bringing flourishing to the creation, bringing the wisdom of God to creation, and sharing the praises of creation back to God, reflecting the image of God both to creation and from creation. We are the image of God placed in this world as, in, as an image in a temple. Humanity was made with uh, it's a beautiful creation. Everything about us, our sexuality, our desires, our love for beauty, our love for fairness, these are all images of God within us. They're hardwired inside of us. But, of course, you know that creation was broken by human rebellion. And from the moment that that happened, human beings began to distrust God. And they decided they could run their lives better by making up their own rules. So they took what was prohibited. And the moment that happened, the lights went out. The lights went out. And the moment that happened, they felt they were naked. They lost their sense of independence, like a child who realizes he's lost his mom somewhere. He was joyfully enjoying the the park, but now he's alone and he's afraid. That's the way we are. That's our natural condition. We've lost our connection with ourselves. They lost their connection with God. They, and so, of course, and, and so they hid from God. They cover themselves up. And then when they were confronted by God, what did they do? But blame one another. She, he blamed her, and she blamed the snake, and they both blamed God. There was brokenness. And so the ultimate purpose of Jesus coming was to reunite heaven and earth together. It was begun by the selection of Abraham. It was begun. It was continued by the the creation of a people of Israel at the new covenant with Moses and his people at Sinai. But they were broken vessels, brought to bring blessing. Ultimately, Jesus was that final one who as a uh, as the the God God man Jewish person, both Jewish, both human Jewish and God in the flesh living among us and giving his life for us so that he could receive in himself all the brokenness of this world. When the earth turns black and God shuts his face and the temple is torn and, and the earth shakes because at that day all the judgment for all the evil of all the world, all the consequences of our own rebellion were poured out on that day. And he reported, took it all in himself. But Thank God he was raised from the dead and given a new resurrected body, a body which he still has today and which then after 40 days he was ascended into heaven as we celebrated two weeks ago. And And then later poured out his spirit, his living life-giving spirit, onto his people, men and women there today. Not just the men, men and the women. And they began to proclaim the mighty works of God as we celebrated last week. And new creation, which occurred in Jesus when he was raised from the dead, now then begins to sprout up throughout this world. And Jesus is in the business of uniting what has been divided. That ultimately at the end of time, God will make sure, it will says, in him, uh, to unite all things in heaven, in, in him, things in heaven and on earth. That's why following his resurrection, Jesus said to his disciples just before he left, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, tell everybody about me. That's what they did new creation begins to happen. It was the first part of the fulfillment of the very Lord's Prayer when Jesus prayed, Lord, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what Jesus is doing is uniting all of creation. And so the book of Ephesians tells us in the first chapter that God has united heaven and earth until that day when we fully united with the new heavens and the new earth. And in chapter two, that God has brought himself, reconciled himself to humanity. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ and raised you up with him and seated you at the right hand of the Father in order that you might show the works of God. To all of creation, God has brought reconciliation and, and a, a, a new creation to humanity in their relationship with God. And immediately he goes and he says, and you guys, you Gentiles, you were brought in too. You didn't have to be Jews to become Christian. We could all become Christian together. He didn't use those terms. They came a little bit later. But we could all be part of God's covenant family. Whereas once we were alienated, now we've been members of the household of God. We were strangers and aliens without hope and without God. God has now brought you to, he has destroyed in his body the dividing wall of hostility and and has created himself one new man out of the two. Jesus brings reconciliation between races and religions and people. Jesus brings people together. Greeks and Gentiles, etc. And that's what's going on. And he makes this church, this new family of people made of people of all different kinds of backgrounds some were cowboys and well i don't know what they were they're were all kind of different people they were slaves and they were they were free they were wealthy and they were poor they were men and they were women they were black and they were white they were jew and they were gentile all the divisions of humanity were destroyed so that we could become one new humanity as a temple unto the Lord. And so it begins to talk about how that is supposed to take its place it to happen in this new community of faith when there are pastors and teachers whose call, who's calling it is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so the body of Christ might be built up so it means one fully mature human being, the new man, the new humanity living life differently as an example to the rest of this world of what the kingdom of heaven is meant to be like by having it happen right here when we gather And then he gets to this section where he talks about men and women and the family. And here we have men and women brought together in connection and in relationship. We are to be mirrors of new creation. We're brought together. And notice what he says as he goes through this. He says, we are a picture of Christ and his church. See, marriage is not just about you and the person you love. It's about Christ and his church for whom he has given his life, to whom he has made his promise and his covenant, and whom he is raising up to beauty until he brings her to himself at the last day. Marriage is a mirror of new creation. That's why, quit being so flippant about marriage. You're talking about something very, very holy. It's, a, it's meant to be an example Of how God brings different people together. That's why marriage by definition involves two different sexes. It involves bringing people together who are different from one another. Who complement one another. who Who become in themselves a brand new person. A brand new being. Something new is created. And if any of you like me have been married for a long time, you know that that spouse of yours is like the right arm of your body. Whatever happens to her happens to you. Whatever happens to you happens to her. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and they shall cleave to one another and shall become one flesh. A whole new person develops, bringing people together in order to become a mirror of new creation. Marriage is the uniting together of a husband and a wife, just like the church is the uniting together of Greeks and Gentiles. And just like our relationship with God is the uniting together of God and humanity. And just as Jesus ultimately comes in order to bring together all of heaven and all of earth, what a beautiful picture that is. <sighs> I hope I didn't bore you see that stuff. Quit reading your news feed and start thinking about what the scripture teaches. It's a mirror of new creation. And just as we were called to flourish in the first creation and to bring live for the flourishing of humanity a a couple are meant to live for the flourishing of their world. And they do it fundamentally by bringing children into that world as well. Yes, sometimes it doesn't happen, but it should never not happen by design. Does that make sense? Sometimes we are unable or circumstances mean we do not have children, but we should never be uh, put ourselves in a situation where we cannot have children. Marriage is a mirror of new creation. Number two, marriage is a holy mystery. Christ and his church kind of jumping on that topic a little bit while I'm talking about this I can't help but they're connected together he talks here about husbands and wives and their relationships with one another and trust me the uh, the expectations for marriage in that day were as out of sync with God's plan as they are in our day but Paul said this is the way it's supposed to be this is the way it's supposed to be it's a holy but notice what he says All the way through his, there is such an emphasis on Jesus and his church. He says this, verse 32, this mystery, the mystery of marriage is profound. And I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. Somehow and in some way we cannot fathom the intimacy of marriage in its most intimate moments is just a picture of the ultimate intimacy between Christ and his church. It goes beyond your imagination. In fact, we cannot, I have not seen nor ear heard the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That's why even for those for whom marriage doesn't happen to them in this life, they still can look forward to the ultimate marriage in heaven when all of us will be united as Christ's bride and at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a holy mystery. And notice the emphasis on on Jesus uh, uh, throughout this text. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23, even as Christ... even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and he himself its savior. Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, verses 25 to 27, as Christ loved the church, verses 29 and 30, Christ, Christ, as Christ does the church. Yes, uh, and the, uh, uh, we are brought to, this mystery is profound, and I am saying it is referring to Christ and the church. Marriage is a holy mystery of Christ and the church. When you, going back to your teenage years, perhaps, at least it was for me, and you found yourself in love with that girl and wanting to be with her, you didn't know what you're getting into, did you? We were 20 years old. We've been together since we were 16. And we did our best to follow God's plan for a li- dating life together. And we stood there on May 31st, 1980, in Lake Havasu City, at the front of the United Brethren Church, when it was 195 degrees outdoors. And I was wearing my very snappy white um, tails, tuxedo. I was lucky because all of my men were wearing very fashionable brown velour tuxedos. And the girls were wearing peach dresses. And my wife walked down that aisle. She was going to be my wife. We had no idea what we were getting into. But we see now That this relationship which has been going on now for just over 39 years has been not even close to how much Jesus loves the church and how much we love him as well. Marriage is a holy mystery. When you talk about the human sexual relationship, you're talking about a huge mystery it's bigger than yourselves, it's transcendent because it is about something much larger than yourselves. It's a picture of Christ and his church. And as Christ gives himself and sacrifices this life for the church, so we who are husbands give ourselves and sacrifice our lives for our wives. We nurture them and nourish them and cherish them so that we can have them be beautiful examples of his love. That's what it says in that text. And as Christ submitted himself to God, who, as Philippians 2 said, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to grasp, but emptied himself and made himself nothing and taking upon the fashion of a servant, he became humble even unto the death, even the death on the cross. And so God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory. Glory of God, the Father. It was Christ's glory to give Himself to the will of the Father, to lay down His prerogatives. It was His glory to be submissive to the will of the Father. So too, it is a wife's joy to be enraptured by the love of her spouse and her husband. Marriage is a holy mystery. It's a holy mystery. That's why, be careful what you say about marriage. Be careful how you handle your marriage. It matters more than you think. It's not just about you and who you get along with and how you like being with each other. No, you've made an unconditional commitment to belong together for the rest of your lives. You need to hold yourself to that. You need to work through that. I should have found one day, I used to write an article for the local newspaper, the Desert Advocate, some years ago. I'll send that to you guys this week. Because one day, a long time ago, I ran across a picture of my wife and my two-year-old daughter when we were young pastors in, uh, in, cave, uh, in, in, in the country there in uh, Indiana. And I, I can visually see this picture. She's standing there with her high-waisted jeans, you know, like 1984, you know, 85, high-waisted jeans, her long brown hair, and this little two-year-old baby with no hair, you know, and uh, I am and I I had a just a a pang of joy as I saw that. I thought, oh my goodness, look where we've come. My daughter's all grown up and she's getting ready to be married. And immediately then I began to think, what would it be like to encounter that photograph 20 years after I had divorced that woman? What would it be like to go and to be working? Uh, it's marching my daughter down the aisle, and her mother is sitting somewhere distant from myself. What would it be like? What would I say to her when, when she was only two, and we were the happy couple, but by the time we were three or four, she was three or four or five, we'd stopped being that happy couple. And I think we, the marriage is such a long-term end game. It's a commitment that you make for the rest of your life. Well, I'll send that to you this week. I think if I think of it, get on the email list and I'll try to find it somewhere. Don't know where it is, but I'll find it somewhere. Marriage is a mirror of new creation. Marriage is a holy mystery of Christ and his church. Marriage is finally and briefly a sacred dance between two equal partners. A sacred dance between two equal partners. It says here that the wife submits as to the Lord and the husband leads, but he does not lead like the world leads. He leads like Jesus led. And we are always asking the question, who's in charge here? But Jesus would say to us, that's the wrong question. In fact, he said that to James and John in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. He's gonna die. He's gonna tell his people, I'm gonna give my life, but I'll be raised from the dead. And James and John, seeing their opportunity, said to him, Lord, we have something we want you to do for us whatever you ask. And they he said, What do you want? And they said, Grant that in your kingdom, one of us can have your right and the other can have your left. And words, give me that position. I want that position. Jesus called all the disciples together, and he basically said to them, the fact that you're asking that question means you know nothing about leadership. That's the way they lead out there. Gentiles lord it over them, and they, they love to be recognized for their leadership. But is, and he says it in very strong terms. Read it in Mark chapter 10. But not to be so among you. For every should be great among you must be least of all. If you want to be the greatest of all, become the servant of everyone. For even the Son of Man, they came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus turns leadership upside down. So the leader is the one with the greatest, greatest uh, challenge to serve. So when we are worried about who's in charge in the home, we're, we're asking the wrong question. We show our ignorance. Husbands, give your life for your wife. Wives, give your life to your husband. Mutual giving. Jesus even washed the disciples' feet in order to prove that to them one other time, the same night that he was... The last thing he did, virtually, he washed their feet. And they were embarrassed because he was supposed to be their leader. They probably should have washed his feet. And here he is washing their feet. Right? Jesus says, I have given you example. You call me your Lord and your Master, and that is so because that is who I am. Now, if I, your Lord and Master, wash your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have given you example that you should do for others as I have done for you. So we have different roles to play. And I think about this, I was never a dancer. In fact, I'm a terrible dancer, but I kind of like watching these uh, dance, ice dancing things. And I see this man who's dancing beautiful moves with his woman, with this woman in the Olympics. And his whole point is not that we say, boy, doesn't he look good? His whole point is that he can say, boy, doesn't she look good? Here she is. What if we reverse the roles and she's trying to lift him up? She's not doing what she was designed to do. She is living in joyful trust and submission and does things that I can't believe they have the courage to do. Jumping out, hoping he catches her. Why? Because that's her glory. That's what she does. And it makes her a beautiful dance. Marriage is a sacred dance between two equal partners. There are steps that we take, ball, step, change, ball, step, change, whatever it is you do in a dance. I don't know what that means, but that's, I've heard it. But ultimately, it just becomes instinctive, so they do something beautiful. It serves a larger purpose, the beautiful movement together as dancing partners. And the same is true in marriage, and when you're very young and inexperienced, you've got to worry about who's doing what, when, what the responsibilities are, but that's a sign of immaturity. After a while, you just begin to make beautiful music together. Yes. And so wives offer to their husbands, as it says here, uh, the loving surrender of submissive love as Jesus surrendered his will to the Father. The sincere respect that he needs in order to feel like he's a worthwhile person because he's weak and you know it. (laughs) And husbands offer the servant sacrificial leadership to their wives laying down his life for us. It's not an accident that the largest number of words Paul uses in this respect is to the men, not to the women. It's to the men you have a responsibility. In fact, the most uh, um, controversial things Paul said in this passage in the first century were not to the women, but to the men. Saying you have responsibility for God for how you treat that woman. You are to lay down your life for her as Christ laid down his love life for her. Yes, Jesus is our example of submissive love, and Jesus is our example of sacrificial love. Now, let's stop worrying about everything we see out there that we wish was wrong, and let's start today worrying about what God is saying to us right here in our relationships with those whom we love. Let's pray while we close. Father, oh my goodness, these are big topics, and I've tried my best in a quick way to summarize some of them, but there's so much more that should and could be said. Thank you for the patience of our people as they've listened to this. I pray that you would create of us beautiful music as together, as dance partners, as husbands and wives, as different people within the church, as people of differences and backgrounds can unite together in our common love for Jesus and make beautiful music so that people can see that there really is new creation happening. It's happening there behind the buffalo chip and those people when they meet. And it's happening there in those families. They're living differently. Something beautiful is coming out of their lives. There's a tune I hear. The melody of new creation. May that be the case. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.